What's going on, everybody? Chris here. Welcome back to the show. As you may know, we have quite a few shows under the Hacker Valley umbrella, and one of those shows is Hacker Valley Red. This last season was so awesome, we decided to bring it here just for you. We will be featuring legends of the offensive side of cybersecurity, so let's jump right in. everyone, it's me, Simone Biles. You might be wondering why you're hearing my voice on a cybersecurity podcast ad. Well, it's because I'm partnering with Axonius. Whether you're a gymnast like me, or an IT or security pro, complexity is inevitable. And I've learned that the key to success is focusing on what you can control. Go check out my video at axonius.com slash Simone. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash S-I-M-O-N-E. We are back with Hacker Valley Red, where we're exploring the nexus of offensive cybersecurity and humanity with a hacker's mindset. Again, I'm one of your hosts. I'm Chris Cochran. And I'm Ron Eddings. And we are going to continue this journey of speaking to cybersecurity legends from the offensive side of the house. We're thinking pen testers, bug bounty hunters, and also offensive operators. One of the things that people, when it comes to mind when you talk about hackers or even just cybersecurity in general, you always think of like the black hat hacker that started hacking when they were a kid and they get in trouble and they either they go to the government or they become a consultant. And that's actually few and far between. There aren't a lot of folks in cybersecurity today that have that particular trajectory. But we have to get right to this episode because the guest for today did that route. Really understanding his origin story is going to be incredible. It was incredible to listen to, but we are talking today to Tommy DeVos, also called Doggy G, and he is a hacker's hacker, starting from a kid, got into a little bit of trouble, and then went on to do incredible things in bug bounty and hacking in general. But without further ado, let's jump right to it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. We are joined with a legend in the making, someone that has been doing big things in the offensive side of the house, offensive operations, red teaming. We have the million dollar hacker, also known as Tommy DeVos also known as Doggy G. <laughs> he is a bug bounty expert, but also a security engineer at Braze. And Tommy, we're so excited to speak to you, especially with all the great work that you've been doing in the field. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to talking with you all as well. Absolutely. We've been looking forward to talking to you for a while now. We heard you won a big competition in 2020. And ever since we are like, we got to get this guy on the show. But for the folks out there that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Sure. I started getting interested in cybersecurity and hacking and stuff back in early to mid 90s. Started out on IRC. My first interactions with hackers initially was people using booters and stuff like that to kick me offline. 
And then one day I was trying to join new chat rooms, find new chat rooms on IRC. And I ended up accidentally joining the wrong room. And uh, when I joined the room, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with IRC, but you have things called operators. And when I went to this room, there were hundreds of operators in this room. And each one of them was named the same thing, but it had like a slightly different string on the end of it. And uh, come to find out, it was egg drop bots that were running on a different U.S. university computer like uh, network, just about every single one in the country. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So I kept joining the chat room because anytime I was in there, there was nobody ever talking. I was still in like, what was it, elementary or middle school, something like that. So I was having to go to bed early, of course. My parents <laughs> wouldn't let me stay up at all hours of the night. And the person that owned the room was actually from uh, San Jose, California. So mm-hmm. the time difference between the East Coast and the West Coast and everything made it so I didn't see anybody online most of the time. And I was still on a dial-up connection. This was before cable modems, DSLs, or anything like that. So it was only dial-ups. So I couldn't like stay connected all night and then like go back and see when people were talking and everything. So I just literally would join this chat room every single day. And after a couple of weeks, I think it was on a weekend, I actually joined and people were actually in there talking. I started to bug them. Like I thought they were cool as hell and I wanted to learn what they were doing. And at first they were just like, who the hell is this kid? And they kept banning me from the room. But the good thing about being on a dial up, I could disconnect, reconnect, get a new IP address and go back in. Right. After doing that for, I don't remember if it was a couple of weeks or a couple of months, the guy that owned the room, his name is Lewis. He finally was like, okay, go on the internet, read everything there is about hacking. And when you're done, come back and tell me. I didn't know it at the time, but it was like a test. And he was looking for me to come back within like a couple hours or a day or so and be like, okay, I'm done. I read everything there is about hacking. So now what? And that's not what happened. I spent a few days reading everything that I could find. And instead of coming back to him and saying, hey, I was done, I came back and I was actually asking questions like, can you explain Mm. this? Can you explain that? How do you do this? And things like that. And he saw that I was like, actually interested in this. And I wasn't one of the people that was just like expecting it to be handed to me and everything like that. So slowly he decided to start teaching me some stuff. He gave me my first shell account. I remember that shell account ended up getting ripped from me. We had a bunch on FNet. We had some uh, shell channels and people would go in there and we would trade routes or boxes that had been rooted. We would trade accounts on them and everything. And It was never a good idea to go first unless you were trading with somebody that really was trustworthy and well-known. I didn't know this, and I went to trade with somebody, and they ripped me. And when I was told by somebody else when my shell stopped working, they were like, oh, you got ripped. Your shell got ripped. Mm-hmm. Like I freaked out. I didn't know what that meant. Like I thought they had like physically broken my shell or something like that, right. you know? And I was like, well, can you help me fix it? And they were like, there is no <laughs> fixing it and everything like that. So he ended up getting kind of mad at me because I wasn't supposed to go and try and trade the stuff that he had given me to get better accounts and stuff like that to begin with. But he got over it and he just kept on teaching me. I got to the point where I think it was around 96 or so. I started actually trying to get my own shells breaking into computer systems and everything. I originally would start targeting Unix systems. And back in the day, the number one rule was being a hacker was don't hack from your own internet connection. Absolutely. At least, right. at least computer systems in your own country. So I would scan the Korean and Japanese IP ranges from my own system 
and I would try and hack those and I would use those as jump boxes. That was one of the first things that Lewis had taught me and stuff like that. He was like, you find a country that you don't have to worry about them coming to get you. You hack those and then you use those to hack U.S. companies and stuff like that. So just started doing that. Started building botnets, joined IRC takeover groups, and we just started going to IRC war with uh, there were groups called TNT and Glitch back on F9 back in the then late 90s. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a guy named Mafia Boy that hit the news a lot in 2000 because he was doing the first major DDoS of e-commerce platforms, Amazon and things like that. And he was actually a rival member of uh, a different channel takeover group. And when he hit the news and we saw how much power was on his botnet and everything, the damage he was able to do, it made a lot more sense on why he was able to kill our connections so easily and frequently when we were going after the same chat rooms and stuff. So hmm. back in, I think it was like 1998, I saw people were doing the defacement stuff. Right. Back then, the main defacement mirror was attrition.org. I ended up coming across that website and seeing where people were defacing the websites and getting them mirrored. So I was like, eh, that's pretty cool. So I started doing the same thing, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. And then I ended up transitioning away from the IRC takeover stuff as much as I was preferring to go and do the defacement and building the botnets and things like that. I was never out to steal identities or anything like that. You know, I was just doing it out of boredom and right. because they said we couldn't do it. I did that for a little over a decade. U.S. government got mad at me a few times, came to visit me in a yeah. not-so-friendly way. In 2000, 2002, I went to federal prison in January of 2004 for the stuff that I had done. I spent just right at two years the first time. Came home again in January of 06. I was banned from touching the computers from when they first came after me in 2000. Mm. They had banned mm. me indefinitely from touching a computer, so... When I came home on probation the first time, they upheld that, and I still wasn't allowed to touch computers as part of my probation. For the first month or so, I didn't get on a computer when I came home from prison, but then it didn't take long before I got bored, and I started to, like, at the time, I came home, and I was staying at my mom's house still, because when you get released from federal prison, you have to, when you're on high probation and house arrest you have to be yeah. released to a family member that will in theory tell on you if you break the rules and stuff mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. staying there and i would wait until my mom and then would go to bed and then i would sneak into her office and get on her computer a little bit and at nighttime and i started out doing it for like an hour or two and then it got to the point where i would stay on until like six o'clock in the morning right before everybody was going to wake up in the house so they wouldn't catch me and then after doing that for a couple of weeks it just got to the point where i didn't want to hide it anymore and mm -hmm. I started doing the hacking stuff again. I did it under a different alias, thinking that I was smarter this time and that they wouldn't catch me this time. I didn't trust people as much as I did previously because that's what had gotten me arrested, my co-defendant stalling on me. And it lasted for about 14 months. And then in March or April of 07, they paid me another visit, found a computer in my house and violated me on probation and sent me back to prison for another year. Mm. I did that year, came home. Didn't waste no time, and I got right back on the computer again. I got an Xbox. I wasn't allowed to have an Xbox, a gaming system, really? or anything like that. Wasn't allowed to have a cell phone or none of that. Wow. But I didn't listen. But when I came home from that time, I didn't start hacking again. Like mm -hmm. uh, they had taught me my lesson when it came to hacking. But I was playing games on Xbox. I was playing games on my computer and stuff like that. I stayed out for about eighteen months, and I was three months away from uh, completing my probation and being released from probation. And 
get raided again by the FBI, DCIS, and a bunch Oof. of other agencies in October of 2009. Come to find out, they had rented the house across the street from me for six months, watching me what? and everybody that came in and out of my house. I didn't know this until they put me in prison. One of my co-defendants, one of my original co-defendants, he had gone back to doing the illegal hacking and stuff again, you know, mm. and he was working with somebody else. And because of how close me and him were when we ran World of Hell together, they assumed that it was me. And a wow. girl that I had broken up with called the FBI and told the FBI that I was hacking again and that I was breaking into banks and stealing money and that I was doing it from my Xbox so that I could hide the traffic in the game traffic. And uh, caused them to launch the investigation. They spent the six months watching me and they couldn't get any evidence because I wasn't doing anything illegal except for possessing the computers and getting online and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. So they raided me again. They gave me the maximum time that they could at the time, locked up. They gave me another 15 months, I think it was, in federal prison. And their mm -hmm. goal at that time was give me the most time that they could. So that way they had me in one place for as long as they could to build their case against me. And they were hoping that they could pressure me into just agreeing to plead guilty and everything. But I kept telling them I wasn't doing it. And the thing that annoyed me the most about this time was every time they've arrested me and they've come at me for the things that I've done wrong, I've admitted it to them. Right. I never tried to say that it wasn't me or anything like that. If you come to me, saying that you've got proof that I did it and everything. It's stupid of me to try to fight it. And I was like, well, the fact that I'm telling y'all I didn't do it should tell you something there. They did their investigation and about four months into the prison sentence, the FBI actually came and visited me in the prison that I was in down in Williamsburg, South Carolina. And they actually apologized to me. They sat there and they were like, you know what? We've gone through your computers and everything else. And we know that it wasn't you now. They even caught the other person that was hacking with my old co-defendant. So they knew for absolute mm. certainty it wasn't me. They apologized mm. for getting me locked back up again and everything for it all. And I was like, well, does that mean y'all are going to let me out? And they were like, well, the problem is you're still in violation of your probation for having mm. the computers and stuff. So there's not much we can do, but we will do this. And they made it so that instead of my probation restarting when I came mm -hmm. home from prison that time, they killed my probation, which in turn killed my ban from touching computers. So as mm -hmm. of November 3rd, 2010, on my last release from prison, I was now allowed to touch computers again. So that was, I don't want to say that it was worth it, but at least I got something positive out of it because yeah, it was an indefinite right. ban up until that point. So I came home November 3rd, 2010, and I immediately started looking for a computer job. But the problem was in 2010, 2011, there wasn't the positive publicity for hackers and stuff. Right. When hackers were in the news, it was still nothing but negative publicity. So everybody automatically assumed that if you were a hacker, you were stealing credit cards, you were stealing identities and things of that nature. And it was really hard to get companies to be willing to give me a shot, especially I'm just coming home from prison a couple months ago. So mm -hmm. very, very few people would even have conversations with me about these kind of jobs and stuff. Because I learned early on that it's best to be upfront and honest with people about my past because I don't want to waste their time. I don't want to waste my time. And I would just always tell people right up front. And then 99 times out of 100 at that time, it would instantly end the call. They would instantly be like, oh, well, let us follow up with this and find out if it's going to be a problem and then we'll get back to you. And if it's not going to be a problem, then we'll continue the process. But mm. they never got back to me. 
that continued until June of 2013. In June of 2013, I actually got lucky, and there was a small startup here in Richmond called Global Works or uh, Synergy. They changed their name and everything, but they helped or help companies like grocery stores and things like that track out-of-stock items on their shelves and stuff. And using their software, they were able to cut restock times down from like three days to like 12 hours or something like that. And they had a system admin that had been with them since they had started the company, and he was leaving the company to go somewhere else. Well, the CTO of this company ended up being a friend of my mom's. And they had talked about me occasionally over the last like 10 or 15 years. He was up to date on everything that I had gone through and stuff like that. And when he found out that the person was leaving the company, he actually hit my mom up and was like, hey, can you put me in contact with your son? I've got a role coming up in here at my company, and I think he would be a good fit. So she made the introduction, and my interview was actually meeting him and the rest of the IT team at a bar here in Richmond on a Friday afternoon after they were done working for the day. And it was more of a an interview to see if I was like a culture fit more so than a skill level fit because he already knew that I had the skills to be the system admin and stuff. So ended up working with them and that ended up being my first computer job. I had initially heard about bug bounties in 2014 and that's when I actually signed up for my accounts on HackerOne and BugCrowd and things like that. But at the time, it seemed too good to be true. that People <laughs> were going to like let me hack into them and then they were going to pay me money. And right. the last time that I went to court in October of 2009, the federal judge flat out told me if I'm ever in the federal court system again for a computer-related charge, he was mm. going to give me life in prison. So mm. it wasn't worth the risk for me. Mm. So I didn't touch any of it. I didn't even think about bug bounties again until 2016. I was on Twitter. I was pretty active with Anonymous at the time. Not the mm. hacking aspect, but the protesting aspect of it and everything. Right. I would do the million mask marches and the marches against Monsanto and things of that nature. And yeah. I ended up following some people that were doing the bug bounty stuff. And I started seeing a blog post about bugs people were finding and getting paid. And I was like, okay, you know what? Maybe that's something that I can look into. So I went back to HackerOne and I tried to create an account and it said email address was already in use. I had completely forgot I had even signed up for this site in 2014, you know? So I covered my password, I logged in and I started looking through on the programs that they had available at the time. And the first program that jumped out at me, it was Yahoo. I started hacking Yahoo in the (laughs) mid-90s. I I knew their systems in the 90s and early 2000s better than a lot of their system admins and stuff. And Mm -hmm. I figure if there's any company that I should start out with, it should be them. So I started doing some hunting and doing some Googling and stuff like that, looking for servers to target, and ended up finding an information disclosure bug where their admins and uh, security engineers and stuff were using the GitHub gist to share diagnostic logs, core dumps, and things like that back and forth when they were trying to troubleshoot a problem. And they were forgetting to either make them private or delete them after they were done. So it was disclosing a ton of information. I reported that to them, and they gave me my first bounty in March of 2016. And once I got that first bounty, I was hooked. It was just like, all right, I know what I'm going to do now. (laughs) 
It's almost like you going through this classic story of being a traditional black hat hacker, and then now you're turning to the good side, trying to help folks out. But at this point, you're pretty much like a professional bug bounty hunter, right? You're the top of the top. Like, what was that process of going through like that initial phase, getting bit by the bug, and then ultimately becoming one of the best? So as I said, I got my first bounty in March of 2016. At that time, I was still with Synergy. But in order to get that job, I had agreed to start my job there for a stupid low salary because I was literally willing to work for almost nothing just to get my feet in the door. And I was only being paid $30,000 a year at the time to be Mm. the only Unix system admin and a Java developer for this company. And wasn't making much money. At the time, 30000 was a lot to me because I had never had a job that paid me that much. But after I got that first bounty, I would spend all of my free time just looking for more bugs. Then in May of 2016, the Pentagon ran their first Hack the Pentagon promotion on HackerOne. I participated for the entire month. I ended up getting first place in that. And I ended up making, I want to say like, somewhere between like twenty and $30,000 mm-hmm. over the course of that month. So I was looking at it like I just worked for like three to five hours a night after my normal job and just did it for a month. And I was able to make an entire year's salary. So I started putting more effort into it just to see what I could make. And through 2016, I only ended up making about $40,000 for the entire year. But that was still more than I was making salary from the company and everything. The beginning of 2017, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make the leap and I'm going to quit my jobs and just try and do the bug bounty stuff. So in 2017, I left Synergy in the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, and I started doing just the bug bounties full time. On my first year doing it, I made just about $100,000, which was crazy money to me at the time. (laughs) So I was like, all right, well, I made the right decision because it was like at that time I was working maybe 40 or 50 hours a month and I was able to make that $100,000. And I just kind of kept with it. And then in 2018, I changed up how I was hacking. My complete methodology changed at the end of 2016 or end of 2017 and into 2018. When I first started, I started out like just about everybody else does in bug bounties. I was relying on automated tools and scanners and stuff like that, yep. like Burp Active Scan, yep. the Zap scans, Arachne, and things like that. And it was finding bugs, but nine times out of 10, those bugs were duplicates because I was using the exact same things as everybody else. So I changed up and instead of relying on scans, I started looking for more impactful bugs that scanners couldn't find and started doing the work manually. So I started looking for SSRFs, iDoors, stored XSSs that required bypassing blacklist and things like that, that a normal web app scanner wasn't going to find because it tries like a basic XSS payload. And if that doesn't work, then it just moves on to the next thing. And when I made that switch, it drastically changed anything. I went from making about $100,000 in 2017, 2018, I made $600,000 Yes, sir. Uh, through the course of that year. Yeah. And I was still working about the same amount. And in 2018, I set my own personal records. I hit, I think there were three days in 2018 where I made over $100,000 on each one of those days, mm. including wow. in October... It was like the first week of October of 2018, 
I had found an endpoint on Yahoo. I was hacking Yahoo almost exclusively at this point. I was doing some other programs during live hacking events, and I was doing some government stuff on Cynic at the time and everything, but most of my income was coming from Yahoo. I had found quite a few server-side request forgeries on them over the earlier parts of 2018. Well, I found a new endpoint for one of them in October, and the blacklist was pretty good, but I enjoy trying to bypass the blacklist used to protect an SSR. And I just started playing with it, trying to find a way to bypass their blacklist at the AWS metadata server. And I found that the AWS metadata IP is 169.254.169.254. I had tried things like encoding the IP address in every different type of encoding that was possible, doing DNS rebinding and things like that, and none of it worked. Well, something told me to try, instead of encoding the entire IP address, I took just the first octet, the first Mm -hmm. 169, and I encoded that into octal encoding, And I left the rest of the IP address the same, and it bypassed their blacklist. So it let me hit the AWS metadata server. So I was like, all right, sweet. So I wrote up that report, and then I was like, you know what? I wonder how many other places on Yahoo this would work. So I started going through my reports on HackerOne, and every single SSRF that I had reported over the last year, I pulled each one of those up, and I tried the same trick on that, and it worked on 18 of them. So at the time, Yahoo was paying $10,000 per SSRF. So I ended up having 18 SSRFs at $10,000 each. So I ended up making $180,000 for about four hours worth of work. Um, So that was extremely They never were like, you know what, let's just bring them in. We're paying them anyways. We have talked several times about me going and working for them. But at the time, it didn't really seem financially like the right move for me because right. 2018 I made 600 grand 2019 I made 900 need thousand so it's like if I would have gone and worked for them in 2018 I would have significantly crushed right. my income because yeah. it's like if you're working for them you can't do the book bounties for them so my plan had been I'm going to kind of like rocket to a wheel swallow. I'm going to keep going until I don't make any more money from them. And then once that becomes the case, then I'll talk to them about maybe going to work for them or whatever. Yeah. 2018 and 2019, I think at this point, I've had single days where I've made six digit income in that single day at least six or seven times. And it's almost always been from Yahoo. And yeah, including actually the day that you referenced in the beginning of this. So HackerOne has these live hack events pre-COVID. Each month, HackerOne had a live hacking event in a different city somewhere in the world for four days. They would invite anywhere from 50 to 200 hackers to that city. They would pay for our flights and our hotels and everything. They would fly us in. Our first day would be the travel and end day. The second day would be a sightseeing day where they would kind of like give us a tour of the city and stuff. The third day was hacking day. You actually get taken to this one little spot. We're all put into a room and we spend about eight to 10 hours hacking on them and getting bounties and stuff like that. And that goes all night, you know, because once it's done, they do all the awards and everything. Mm -hmm. And then everybody's so happy because we've just made a ton of money. So we end up having a party afterwards. That's the Hacker One party. And then at Hacker One, after Hacker One events, 
you always end up at a karaoke spot after the party and everything like that. And then the last day, of course, is the relaxed day slash traveling back home day and everything. And that was their events. They followed the naming format of H1 dash and then the area code for whatever city you're in is Mm -hmm. they use that in the name. So that event was H1 415, I think it is. 415, I think, is the area code for San Francisco. So that was actually the last live hacking event that was thrown before COVID hit everything. And I think on that event, I made about $130,000 for that day. But the thing about the live hacking events, initially, it was the very first live hacking event for HackerOne was H1702 in Las Vegas during DEF CON of 2016. And for that one, we didn't know who the targets were in advance. It was a three-day event. We would get to the suite that they had rented out at the MGM. And when you walked in, that's when you found out who your target was. And we would get a new target each of those three days. Well, after that, the hacking event slowly evolved. So instead of only getting the eight hours of the day at the event of hacking, they started giving us the companies two weeks in advance and opening up the like pre-event hacking so that you were able to do hacking for the week or two leading up to the event and submit the bugs. And then they would triage them and pay them on the event day. And then you would still be hacking them and stuff that day as well. But they found that they got better results for their customers and more bugs and stuff when they would give us two weeks before the event to hack them instead of only confining it to the bugs that we could find that day and stuff. So the $130,000, I got paid it on one day, but it was over the course of about a week, week and a half of hacking leading up to the event. That So it wasn't technically all from one day's of hacking. I think many people wouldn't complain about buck 80 over the course of a week and <laughs> yeah, a half. Right. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, you can't really, you can't really complain about it. But I'm glad you said that because I get a lot of messages and comments on my tweets and things like that of people wanting to do what I do and stuff. And I think the biggest problem with new bug, not with new bug hunters, but for bug bounty hunters is they see all of us sharing on Twitter and stuff like that when we're successful and making these huge sums of money. Mm -hmm. So they're expecting that they're going to be able to come in and do the same thing, you know, and that's just not realistic. And one thing that many new bug bounty hunters fail to take into account is the fact that we fail significantly more as a hacker then you're ever successful. Even the best hacker in the world fails five to 10 times more often than he or she is actually successful in hacking whatever their target is. But none of us publicize when we have those failures. We only talk about when we're successful and everything. So that's all these new people are seeing or people that aren't even from the industry. All they're seeing is all of these success stories and stuff. So they're wanting to get into this. They're thinking that there's some like secret or special sauce or special program that we can run that helps us do this kind of stuff. And I see on Twitter all the time where people have decided that they wanted to start doing bug bounty hunting and they've quit their jobs and they're just doing this. And it's been six months and they still haven't found a single bug and everything. And it's like, I don't understand how people can logically think that that was a good idea. 
first off, doing bug bounties and stuff full time is not for everybody. You can make a living from it, especially where you're from definitely impacts your ability to make a living from it as well. If you live in a country whose median income for the country is extremely low, then it's a lot more viable to try to make a living out of this. But if you live in the US, Germany, the UK, or something like that, where the cost of living is higher than some of these places, it makes it a lot harder to do bug bounty hunting full time. And I try and tell people all the time, first off, don't just quit your jobs and start trying to do this. You need to spend years leading up to that point. Don't quit your jobs before you've ever found your first bug and gotten your first bounty. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't make logical sense to begin with. And it's just a bad decision. And don't come into this thinking that you're going to be able to replicate my success or try to hack me or Mark Litchfield's or Franz Rosen or something like that. A lot of us have been doing this for a very long time. Mark Litchfield has been a hacker for as long as I have. He started doing this in the 90s as well, but he never took the route that I took going the blackout route first. He started on the good side. He started out as a whitehead with his brother and everything, but he still has two decades of experience Mm -hmm. of hacking systems and helping secure them and stuff like that. Most of us that are the top earning hackers, we've got this experience from, if not decades, then at least like close to 10 years. Now, there are exceptions to that because you've got Nathaniel Wakeham, hell of a hacker, He's but he's young as shit. I think Nafi is maybe 25 or so right now, but mm-hmm. Nafi is one of those people that he didn't come into this expecting to be instantly successful. He understood that he had to come into this and he had to put in the effort. He had to put in the time of learning things and understood that when it comes to hacking, you can never stop learning. So, Chris, you were saying for a while, we got to have Doggy G on the podcast. Yeah. We got to reach out to him. And we've been reaching out to him. And I'm so glad that you know, we had the opportunity to speak to him because this story, the story that he presented to us about his background and just how he got started in cybersecurity and hacking, it's incredible. It almost feels like this episode was a movie for me. A hundred percent, like just all the way through the start of a movie. But what's really interesting about this is with our sponsor for this season, Plex Track, there's a lot of similarities between what he was doing with Hacker One and what Plex Track does for cybersecurity practitioners. Because when he's doing his bug bounty stuff, that is scaling your cybersecurity program. You're inviting other folks to find the holes, the bugs, and then you take that information, you put it in HackerOne, and then they use that information to fix their security program. Same thing you can do with PlexTrack internal to your organization. So whether you have a red team or whether you have people that are really focused on finding the gaps, the holes, the vulnerabilities in your environment, then you can communicate that to the blue team so they can close out those gaps and be that much tougher of a target for folks like the old Doggy G. Yes. And by the way, we would highly recommend everyone to check out FlexTrack. Not only are they a sponsor, but they are also friends of Hacker Valley. And you could check them out by visiting plextrack.com forward slash Hacker Valley. That's P-L-E-X-T-R-A-C dot com forward slash Hacker Valley. One thing we didn't mention is that this is going to be a two-parter. That's right. We are not done with Tommy. He goes on to tell so many more stories and some incredible advice for everyone out there in cybersecurity. So be sure to check out part two coming right up. See you soon. 